On this day, the 27th of April, 150 years ago, this man, Lieutenant General Sir Duncan Cameron, was based in a military camp down the road from here on the mission land. He was preparing for the assault on Gate Park. The date for battle had been set by agreement, April the 29th. This, for Cameron, was to be the definitive battle. The British victory that would signal the end of the King movement and their rebellion against the settler government. This was the reason that Cameron had been sent to New Zealand and it had taken nearly three years for this day to arrive. General Cameron was a professional soldier. He'd enlisted at the age of 17 in the 42nd Regiment, the Black Watch. His father was a soldier before him and his grandmother as well. He'd been promoted because of his ability and his connections, and he distinguished himself in battle in Crimea, in places that are becoming familiar to us again for all the wrong reasons, Balaclava and Sebastopol. But as well as being a good leader in battle, he was also keen to reform officer training and bring new ideas about strategy and equipment, and consequently he spent time on the staff at Sandhurst Military Academy. In 1860, he was given command of the troops in Scotland, a highly prized role by Scottish officers. By the time General Cameron was sent to New Zealand to take command of the armed forces here, he was considered to be one of the most accomplished British officers. Cameron disembarked in New Plymouth in 1861 at the age of 53, and he took charge of the forces engaged in fighting against Taranaki Māori and their supporters. He had been sent by the War Office to take over because they were not happy with the progress or lack of it in Taranaki, but by the time Cameron actually arrived, it was nearing the end of that campaign there. But soon, there was talk of a major offensive against the King movement in the Waikato, and Cameron enthusiastically supported this plan. Due to a series of political events, including the sacking of Governor Thomas Gore Brown and the appointment of a new governor, George Gray, the invasion did not begin for another two years. But as the plan for invasion became a certainty, Cameron applied his skills and experience in preparing the invasion force. He knew from his engagements in the Crimea and other places that nothing could be won without supply lines being well prepared. So he set about constructing the Great South Road as a supply route from Auckland down to Pokino. He brought in specially enforced, reinforced riverboats that would move up the Waikato River. Troop numbers were increased. By the middle of 1863, the men, the boats, the road, the forts, the staging posts, the communications were ready. And they crossed the Manatapuri River, the border, into the Waikato. During the next six months, General Cameron led his troops through the Waikato, all the time hoping for a decisive battle that would end the King movement. It didn't happen. Māori didn't fight the way he expected. And he was faced with some days of defeat, 
some victories. Some skirmishes where Māori escaped unscathed. And lots of delays in what he thought would be a straightforward campaign due to the superiority of numbers and force. Six months later, and still the King movement was not defeated. Finally, in February 1864, Cameron confronted the Patarangi Line, the most formidable group of power the Māori had ever built, protecting the richest agricultural area of what we know as the King Country, and manned by their strongest army. In his greatest military achievement, Cameron outflanked this line and took it and the whole district at a low cost. This victory permanently weakened the King movement, but still they were not defeated. However, he didn't have that one clear-cut victory that he really wanted. And then an opportunity presented itself in Tauranga. So Cameron halted operations in the Waikato and took his striking force across the Kaimai. What happened at Gate Park we now know so well. Despite having a superior military force in numbers and armaments, despite having a well-prepared plan of bombardment and attack, despite having troops completely surrounding the path to block any escape route, and despite the support of several battalions with experienced officers in charge, his attack was routed by the engineering brilliance of the combined tribes fighting at Gate Park. When the troops advanced after a day of bombardment, General Cameron at the rear was forced to watch through his field glasses while officers were killed, and troops began running from the battle in disarray. It's recorded that the general dashed his field glass on the ground, turned his back on the fugitives, and retired to his tent to conceal his emotion. General Cameron left Tauranga after this battle, no doubt bitterly disappointed that not only had he been defeated, but he had still never achieved that one victorious battle that would be the decisive blow. He left instructions for Colonel Greer to make sure that no more path were to be built. And the attack at Tauranga in June was launched almost immediately <coughs> after Greer became aware of the construction's happening. General Cameron was sent to further skirmishes in Taranaki, but he had tendered his resignation and he returned to England in August 1865. His remaining career was steady and honourable. He was promoted twice more and served on a royal commission into military education. He was then appointed Governor of Sandhurst, where he served for seven years until he retired. He married at the age of 65, but his wife died just two years later and there were no children. General Duncan Cameron died in June 1888 at the age of 80. Cameron confronted two major areas of doubt while he was in New Zealand. One was his doubts about the purpose of some of the orders given to him. He was concerned about the way politicians were using the army for the purpose of land grabbing and profiteering. He had some admiration for Māori fighting in defence of their land, 
and little admiration for the politicians who he considered on the whole mean-spirited, self-important little men who would count for little back in England, but had grand opinions of themselves in this new society. He confronted Governor Gray over this on many occasions and never backed down from stating his position. And in the end, the breakdown of his relationship with the Governor contributed to his resignation. But Cameron also had to confront doubts about his military strategy. It failed on several occasions here. He must have done a lot of reflection on what happened in the Waikato invasion and this battle at Gaika. And as someone already involved in military reform, we can assume that what he encountered in New Zealand contributed significantly to how he further reformed officer education at Sandhurst whilst governor there. Today's gospel brings doubt into focus. Jesus has a conversation with Thomas, who doubts that his leader is alive because he has not seen him. As a consequence of this conversation, Thomas is known now as Doubting Thomas. And this tends to have a negative con connotation. We use the term Doubting Thomas to critically describe someone who seems to be hesitant or stuck in their doubts. Doubt is not always bad. Sometimes doubt is essential. Doubt can be like pain. Pain tells us that something nearby or something within us is dangerous to us. It's a call for attention, a call for action. Similarly, doubt tells us that something in us, a concept, an idea, a framework of thinking, deserves further attention because it may be harmful or false or creating some kind of imbalance. There is a dark kind of doubt, an exaggerated and self-destructive kind of doubt that can paralyse us and lead to despair. But think of it like this, an imagination is good, but imagination out of control is called psychosis. Fear is healthy, but fear out of control is paranoia. Sensitivity is a wonderful gift, and anger is a necessary emotion. But sensitivity or anger out of control can lead to depression. Doubt is the same. Out of control it becomes unbelief, a hard heart, arrogance or cynicism. Doubt is like the ants in our pants. It keeps us moving. As Christians, we're committed to a lifelong spiritual journey, a lifelong journey of growth. That means that in, say, five years from now, our set of beliefs will hopefully be different from today. They'll be more fine-tuned, more tested, more balanced, more examined. And what causes us to test a belief? It's that something inside you that isn't at rest something that raises a doubt. By doubting a belief and then examining it, you can either keep it, discard it, or adjust it. 
Easter period has been a complex one for me, as I have walked the traditional Easter Christian journey, while simultaneously walking the journey towards the commemorations of the Battle of Hiopate Path. The path crosses so often between the Māori version and the British version of what happened, why it happened, and the effect of the outcome. Yesterday I heard the cannons blasting away at the domain. Today, as on many days, we hear the carvers chipping away at the tortoise trees outside. Tomorrow and the next day, we will hear the story of Gate Park told from many, many different perspectives. The more I know, the more questions I have, and the more doubts I have about what I previously understood. We can embrace doubt. We can ask the questions. We need not be afraid of being labelled a doubter by ourselves or others. We can take the challenge of allowing doubts to be the ants in our pants, the things that make us grow. And we can face the risen Christ and ask the questions we need to so that we can proclaim again with Thomas, my Lord, and my God.